0: Dude, we are going to energise the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr Nice Guy. Another future is possible,
1: but we've got to fight for it. Order!
0: Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host Will, and in this episode I'm delighted to be joined by David McKenzie, the Liberal Democrat candidate for the uh, Scottish Parliamentary seat of Glasgow Kelvin. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you Will, and thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. It's great to have you on. Uh, the first question that I'd like to ask is, uh, what made you decide to stand as the uh, Lib Dem candidate for Glasgow Kelvin? What prompted you to get involved in this particular election?
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, so um, I, I'm originally from uh, Scotland, originally from a small town called Greenock, which is not too far from from Glasgow. Uh, Glasgow Kelvin in itself has been sort of a home away from home, if you will, for a, a number of years. Um, I talked about how I regularly visited Glasgow Kelvin when I was younger. And um, I used to before a, a terrible terrible knee injury, I used to be a, a runner um, and there used to be a stadium in Kelvin called Kelvin Hall. Uh, which was an indoor track athletic stadium. It's now it's actually been moved there from now. And it's over the other side of the uh, of, of Glasgow in the East End. Um, and now at the new arena they built for the Commonwealth Games. But yeah, I used to train the 60 meters in the winter at, at Kelvin Hall. Um, I actually, weirdly enough, met my partner, my fiance, in Glasgow Kelvin's constituency boundaries. So we met at a pub called the Old Hairdresser's Bar. Uh, And I also used to. I've been very fond of boxing since I was a young man. So my grandfather was a boxer, and he introduced me to the sport. And um, I used to go with my my best friend Stephen. We used to go to a gym called the Grip House, which is on Postle Road. Which is um, it's actually an MMA gym, but they do boxing as well. And and both of us are big fans of combat sports. So we used to go there on a Sunday and train boxing. And when the opportunity arose to to stand in Glasgow Kelvin, I jumped at it because I think this is an election where there's a lot for the Liberal Democrats, the Scottish Liberal Democrats to say. And I felt that I was in a position to tell that story. So I thought it was time to get involved.
0: What do you see as the main priorities for the constituents of Glasgow Kelvin at this election? What do you think is going to motivate them in terms of picking a particular candidate to vote for?
1: Yeah, so look, I think everybody kind of looks at when you're electing, I always say when you're either electing for the Scottish Parliament or even if you're looking at Westminster, the the UK Parliament, um, people tend to look at two things. They look at the national picture and they look at locally what's important to them. So from a national perspective, I think, and I'll be upfront where I stand on this, and there's no point in hiding away from the constitutional issue, but um, I believe that now is not the time for that argument. Now is the time to focus on the pandemic and focus on recovery. And I think there's a lot of people, especially when I've been speaking to people on the phones. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't door knock for much longer time than people down in, in England and parts of Wales. But when I've been speaking to people on the phone, they've been saying, look, that now does not seem like the time we want to run this debate again. We want to talk about how do we come out of this pandemic and how do we get the economy back to where it should be. But secondly, from a, a local perspective, you know, when you're talking to people in Glasgow, there's a number of things that I think really concern them. Now, there's the the day-to-day things that, in my opinion, should be easy to fix and aren't getting fixed, things like street lighting and things like potholes. Um, the potholes are atrocious across Glasgow. Um, I would really ask Glasgow City Council what exactly they're doing about it. In fact, the... The other night there when I was out leafleting, I, I burst my tyre on one of the potholes and had to wait for the AA to come and pick me up, um, which was somewhat of an annoyance. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the other thing is, I actually was speaking to people from Glasgow University, um, especially young females the other night there, which was within the Glasgow Kelvin constituency. And because of recurring problems with street lighting, they do not feel safe to walk mm-hmm. home at night. And I just don't think that's acceptable for a big city like Glasgow. Now, there's other issues that I think are key and important to talk about so for the last 10 years while well, the SNP have been in power mm. uh, glasgow kelvin's rate of child poverty has increased rapidly there's now 41 percent of children in glasgow kelvin constituency that are living uh, in poverty mm. and i don't think that's acceptable and i would question as to why they've allowed that to happen and the other point as well as um, glasgow kelvin as a constituency is has several of the roads, well, one in particular, which is the most polluted road in the whole of Scotland, which is Hope Street in Glasgow Kelvin, which is within the city centre boundaries. Now, my uh, my opposing candidate in the SNP would say that, oh, well, actually, last year, it fell below European standards for emissions, but that's because we were in the midst of a pandemic and no one was travelling. So there's got to be questions said and, and asked about, Okay, once we get back to normality, we cannot allow these things to go back to the way they were before. And obviously, I'm putting things on the agenda that say, why are these not priority number one? And why are we putting children in poverty and people's health at risk or we're not actually tackling these local issues? You mentioned child poverty there. And another issue that has um, dogged the
0: SNP for entire entire time in office has been the issues relating to education. The SNP have continually uh, made promises relating to education that they would improve it and continually year on year uh, the education service in Scotland has gotten worse. Why do you think that they have not been able to improve education in Scotland and what would a uh, Lib Dem majority in the Scottish Parliament do to improve children's education in Scotland. Mm.
1: I think you've got to look at, so there's a couple of factors involved in this. And I think um, when the First Minister says, judge me on my record on education, then frankly, you should kick it out. Right? <laughs> that's, that's, um, that's the upfront and honest answer. Uh, they've absolutely failed over the 14 years that they've been in government to improve education across Scotland. Uh, The curriculum changes are not well liked by most teachers. Um, And in fact, when you look at attainment standards, they are going down and not up. Now, uh, I actually was on a hustings the other night with Ivan McKee, who is uh, I was filling in for another candidate in another part of Glasgow, who was ringing praises about how, oh, actually, education's back on the rise. And I just think that you... It's a shoddy answer to say, oh, it's fell, but now it's rising again, so we should be thanked for that. Now, what the Lib Dems intend to do is, first of all, we think you have to have a massive investment in education so that every teacher who wants a job can get a job, and I think we need to reduce class sizes if we're going to deal with the problems of attainment. And secondly, uh, we've also got to make a serious decision reach out to STEM teachers, people that are coming from especially science backgrounds, to get our young people into STEM jobs, which are going to be crucial when we move forward into things like the green recovery and how we invest in renewable technology, especially engineering. Um, so we are saying that we would start off with a 30K basic wage for people coming out of university that would go into teaching to teach STEM. And then that would increase over a period of years to give them that incentive to go into teaching and help the next generation. Um, look, I, Education is something that I think um, gets a lot of focus, but there's there's one thing I wanted to say, which was, so my background is I never went to university, so I left school at 16 and went straight into employment. Um, and I was actually quite benefited under the fact that when I was at school, um, the Scottish Parliament had come into effect when I was eight years old. Um, and then literally from when I went into high school, it was completely under the uh, the Liberal Democrat Labour Coalition that was in power at the time at, at the Holyrood. When I left school, that's when the SNP just came into into power. Now, I was benefited from a Scottish government programme that got me into employment with a company called Hewlett-Packard, which some people might know, which is a major um, technology firm. And through that investment, I went on to build a career within the technology industry that now leads me to where I am now, where I'm a software consultant. Um, Most of the people I work with on a daily basis have degrees. Um, I don't that's not to say education is a bad thing, but I think we've also got to look at, okay, for people who may not be able to get to that attainment level, what are we doing to help them next? And I think you've also got to look at the fact that the SNP massively cut college places to pay for free university tuition. Mm. And as we all know, College is the route for people who come out of impoverished backgrounds, and also people who didn't manage to attain the levels to go to university to make that next leap towards further education. So systematically, what they've done is they've carved out a route to future employment and a, a route to a future life, and uh, betterment by taking those college places away. And I just think that's a travesty.
0: Now, uh, on the point of education, the um, Scottish Lib Dems manifesto uh, promises to ensure that every qualified teacher will, you know, remain. Uh, in teaching, is that going to cost uh, any uh, extra money that is already going into the education budget, or would it simply be um ensuring that teachers aren't faced with the same kind of challenges that they are with class sizes? What would be what would entail relating to that?
1: Yeah, so look, I think we we do have to make further investment in the education budget. I mean, I, I don't think there's any way around that. Um, but you know, if you look at the costings for the manifesto, I think uh, it's one of the best costed manifestos um, across all the parties. Um, in terms of the, you know. I think what we need to do is we need to make sure that we're reducing those class sizes down. Now, one thing that I think is quite interesting that might sort of change the dynamic is obviously getting more teachers into employment. But mm. we've also talked about we want to follow the Nordic model of education, which means that younger children wouldn't actually start formal education until the age of seven. Mm. Now, that obviously would mean that before the age of seven, they'd mostly be learning through, um, you know, play to learn, nursery type settings. That's what they do in the Nordic countries. They have much higher attainment levels than we do and I think if you look at actually taking uh, that two-year gap out there's a huge amount of savings that would then pay for more teachers at the other end of the spectrum and I think it's it's through dynamic changes like this that are going to help pay for that process.
0: What impact do you think online learning which of course a lot of children have been going through because of the pandemic will have on the future of education do you think there will be more emphasis on using online resources and potentially more teaching online going into the future
1: mm. i think um it's an interesting question um i i have so i before all this happened um i used to do some well i say used to do i still do uh, some online training courses um with platforms like udemy um mm. and also uh god i can't remember the name of the other one i do apologize but mm. um i did a i did a course with um harvard law school um that was on uh deliberations for social change and how to use sort of um, uh, groups like juries to make decisions, um, which all comes back to things like citizens' assemblies, which I think are hugely important. Um, I I tend to find that I feel I learn much better in settings like that that use online tuition and you can pick and choose when to come back to um, it. I, you know, at, at school, I probably didn't have the best attention span. Um, and, you know, there are distractions that come. So I think we do need to look, look, a lot more children these days are hugely technology savvy and probably uh, the next generation that comes after that are going to be even more so. So I think there is a, an opportunity to look at collaboration and how you take classrooms and online learning and mix them together so that future generations can can learn. Um, I also think, look, when I was at school, you used to take homework home, write it in a daughter and then hand it in to the teacher. You know, maybe there's a way to look at, could you do your... Uh, your homework online and then you know simply uh, send it to the teacher to mark that evening Um, but you know these these are all things that I think need to be discussed when we come out of this pandemic and how much people want to change. It's interesting you should say that because I think what's quite interesting is a lot of businesses are looking at not a return to normality but there's not really been much discussion about anything else beyond businesses and not going back to sort of five days in the office type settings. Now on the subject of uh
0: businesses in the manifesto Uh, there is a commitment for two thousand paid graduate internships with small businesses what impact do you think that that would have on local
1: economies local businesses and how much would it cost Mm. so i mean first of all there's uh, the interesting aspect about this um i think it would absolutely benefit people because a lot of graduates are coming out now and they can't find work so you if you make a strategic investment in getting those people into work. It not only benefits the graduate in getting work experience, it also benefits a lot of these small to medium enterprises and getting somebody that's just come out of university has a lot of knowledge, maybe has some new ways of working that could be beneficial to the business to help it grow as well. But beyond that, what we're also talking about is when we come out of the pandemic, especially for things like the hospitality sector, is looking at um, cutting business tax rates so that they can recover faster um, and not put the burden of this onto the people who've had to be closed for the majority of the time that we've asked you know business people and the general public to, to to you know stick with us to get through this pandemic and i think that's important um I think when you look at how it's funded, uh, you you know, it's it's easy to take, when somebody comes out of a a university and they're looking for work, obviously they're going to have to take a level of benefits while they do job seeking. So simply if you just shift the cost from job seeking into actually funding these people to go into, which I think is also quite interesting when we talk about things like, uh, people have asked me before, how are you going to fund a UBI well, actually, if you look at the amount of administration costs, et cetera, that go into working out who should get benefits and where and doing all the testing and everything, you could save a lot of money by reducing that down by just giving everybody a universal basic income. So I think all these things about come out, you're a graduate, we put funding towards putting you into work, we take it out of the, um, things like job seekers Allowance, you know, that, that it'll be easy to cost that.
0: Hmm. In terms of UBI, um, you mentioned that obviously um, cheaper in terms of uh, giving it rather than in terms of benefits would there be a uh, cutoff point in terms of people who earn a certain amount of income because one of the things that um, opponents of UBI said well what's the point in giving say somebody who's earning uh, 50 uh, you know 500 grand a year or whatever someone at the height of uh, uh, the economy and uh, monetary attainment what's the point of giving them A a universal basic income so would there be uh, certain people
1: who would be priced out because of the income that they're already getting from employment? Mm. I mean it's an an interesting question and what I would first of all say is that um, we are still going through the policy for how a UBI would be uh, funded and how it would work so I don't want to make any assertions Mm. that this is you know lived in policy yet because obviously um, with a UBI it would fundamentally have to come from from the Westminster government, Um, that power's not devolved yet, so uh, we would need to work out exactly what scale we'd be doing this on, but I think there's opportunities to do pilots. Now, it's interesting though, um, I've had some conversations with uh, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, who is an MP for the Liberal Party in Canada, and they're obviously going through pilots of, of universal basic income at the moment. Now, there are people that do say, well, why would you give money to people who might be millionaires, billionaires, or quite wealthy and in the top, you know, sort of 1-2% of the country. I think that's something that needs to be looked at, but obviously the term universal basic income would tend to mean that it's across Mm. the board and it's not means-tested. What's interesting, though, is um, if you... So as we come out of this pandemic, we've gone through a GDP yo-yo effect where, you know, the GDP fell in the first lockdown, then it slightly rose again, and then it massively dropped again in the second lockdown. And in fact, you know, if we do perhaps go into... um, we've gone into a third lockdown, if we do perhaps go into a fourth, and again, we might see a major dip. Um, the interesting thing about what Canada are looking at, they call it um, economic guardrails, which is how do we get the economy back onto a level footing once we come out of you know structural lockdowns? And they said, actually, piloting a UBI could be very effective because... Um, especially for people in low-income households, if you give them money, they are guaranteed to spend it. So you push that money back into the economy and it's cyclical. And what that means is obviously more money being spent, more people get employed because the money's been spent, and uh, obviously mm-hmm. then it goes back into tax revenues and then it's, it's a cyclical economical effect. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about how would it benefit people who were on low income or in, in, you know, in, in poverty at the moment and how mm-hmm. that would help them in their life, but we also need to look at the levels. What would we actually be putting in people's pockets to be able to spend? Um, I'm not too sure. If I'm honest about the means-tested aspect, about what about people who make X, Y, and Z? But you know, these are all things that have to be worked out before the policy is put in place.
0: In terms of um, investment to uh, get the economy um, going, again, there's about a hundred Conservative MPs at Westminster who have suggested that everyone between the ages of 18 and 24 is given £500 pounds as a means of restoring the, the high street and uh, getting the economy moving again. Would this be something that you think, if it was passed in, in Westminster, that something that you would like to see uh, happen in Scotland?
1: Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's another interesting question. Um, you've obviously seen when uh, they, they did something similar in America where they gave everybody a cheque from the Treasury, uh, well, not the Treasury, the Federal Reserve, um, to actually go out and spend, and it did have quite a boosting effect on the economy. So, um I, look, with these things, I always defer to what economists think and if they think it'd be beneficial. Um, so, you know, I'm not I'm not opposed to it. I'd probably just need to see the workings on on how it would be deployed. And, you know, I always tend to think, well, what are the Tories proposing? Because it's sometimes not always what I would suggest to do. So, um, but yeah, look, I think there is a case to be made about, um, can we give people some money to you know, maybe in something that's targeted that would be particularly for spend on high streets, et cetera, mm-hmm. that could help get them back because a lot of high streets have really suffered. Um, and I know my mum and dad still live in Greenock and mm-hmm. the high street in Greenock is, to be frank, it's mostly bedding shops mm-hmm. and uh, charity shops and any sort of linchpin uh, businesses that they had there have really suffered as a result of this. And in fact, some of them have pulled out during this this pandemic. And in fact, some bu- businesses have obviously liquidated. Mm. Um, in little towns like Greenock, where I'm from, you know, it, it's the high street that's the focal point. And uh, it really hurts a local area when we lose these services. And the same thing can be said for Glasgow Kelvin. I mean, I know... Um, I was the other day there talking to the Federation of Small Businesses and we were talking about um, encouraging people to go out and spend and get back into shops, etc. Um, and I was encouraging people to go down and... Uh, something I'd visited in the past was my local comic book store, um, City Centre Comics. Now, back in the day, I used to be a huge, avid comic book reader. I can't say I do much of it now, probably because... Uh, my fiance doesn't let me have that amount of time to read comics, but, um, but you know, it's, it's little independent businesses like this that are really going to need support and are really going to need backing. Um, and if we lose them, you might never get those services back.
0: We're going to take a short break now to listen to a trailer for the Politics of Sounds podcasts May episode. When we get back, I'll be talking to David about working with the banking sector, railways and renewable energy, Brexit, And what he's most looking forward to being able to do once coronavirus has been ended and things are back to normal. Back with you in a moment. May is just around the corner and that means the new edition of the Politics of Sound podcast. That's the show on which politicians and other political figures reveal their all-time three favourite albums. My guest this month is the latest YouTube sensation, Max Foch, whose comedy videos have commanded huge audiences. But how serious is his bid to be the next London Mayor? And what would be his first thought if he actually won? You might have to bleep this one out, but my first thought is shit. (laughs) So that's the Politics of Sound podcast, out on the 1st of May, with me, Ian Carnegie, and my guest, Max Foch. I hope you enjoy it. To what extent do you think in helping small uh, businesses, as you mentioned both in, in Greenwich and Glasgow, Calgary, to what extent do you think that uh, a government, whether it be the, the Scottish Parliament or uh, the Westminster uh, Parliament, would have to work with um, banks and the banking sector in order that perhaps they're not as... Um, Uh, fastidious in asking for return of loans from businesses, perhaps for a certain period. Do you think that that is something that uh, would have to be done? How do you think the uh, governments could work with the banks to make things easier for smaller businesses?
1: Yeah, look, I think there's a a case to be made. The banking sector, um, you know, to be clear, my thoughts on this, um, and this is my thoughts, uh, you know, post-2008, you know, the government in the United Kingdom, absolutely majorly helped the banking sector to survive what was a catastrophic event which could have seen a number of those banking institutions go under Um, and I think there's then a case to be made that if we are truly all in this together in this pandemic then we band together and we look at how you can maybe give people I mean we've given homeowners mortgage holidays um, and I think there's maybe opportunities to say for you know businesses. I've heard some horrible, horrible stories about people who had just set up their own independent business just before the pandemic hit and they've had to close them down because they had no income they could uh, they could go for. Um, so I, I think you know there's there's an opportunity to talk that through and, and I think um, it would be benefited if it was something that was discussed, a, a UK-wide perspective as opposed to maybe some nations deciding to go off and do their own thing. Um, in terms of... Uh economic impact obviously
0: we've discussed coronavirus but brexit has also had an economic impact mm. as well how do you feel you know uh, a couple of years on from leaving the european the uh, impact has has been on um scotland do you think that there should be a movement at some point in the uh, the relative uh near future for the uk or or just scotland for Rejoining the European Union.
1: Mm. Well, let's take that in a couple of steps first of all. So, look, I, I, I'm I'm a proud European, and and I advocated madly uh, and and uh, almost exerted myself too much in the Remain cause. Um, I actually, uh, at the time, I was living in in, in Reading in England. Um, so, I've lived across parts of the UK. And at the time, I was living in Reading when I worked um, for Oracle in the technology sector. And uh, so I, I campaigned in Reading for Remain. Um, I campaigned in London when I was at the office in London uh, in the evenings there. Uh, I campaigned in Scotland when I came home to visit my mum and dad. Mm. And in some ways that kind of gave me this um, false sense of security because <laughs> Reading was heavily Remain, London mm. was heavily Remain. And then uh, and then when I was at home in Scotland, it was heavily Remain. Um, my partner, mm. uh, Grace, she is from the East Midlands. Mm. Um, and so when we went to visit her parents in Derbyshire, I I did some campaigning there and I was like, oh, okay, right? (laughs) Every door I'm knocking here is not exactly um, uh, very positive about the EU. Um, I I am also passionate about Scotland remaining a member of the United Kingdom. Now, Mm. I would caveat that with saying, and uh, I was on a hustings the other night there and the (laughs) the Tories pulled me up for this and I don't think they fully understood what I was saying. As I said, um, I don't, I'm not afraid of the term unionist, but I consider myself a federalist. But I appreciate that a federal country is part of a union. Yeah. Um, I just don't think people understand the difference. And, uh, and the Tories jumped on it and said, oh, you know, they don't support the union, which is just not the case. But um, I'm, I'm a federalist, so I believe in a new constitutional settlement for you know all the nations that make up the United Kingdom. Um, in terms of what that means for the future, look... <laughs> Obviously, from my perspective, I ultimately would like to see the United Kingdom rejoin the European Union. I don't think the case can be made right now for that to happen. Mm. But I think there's there's a roadmap to rejoining that's maybe in the medium to long-term future. And I think when you look at the majority of people who voted remain in the young demographic, I think there will eventually come a time that that will happen. My opinion is, though, that the United Kingdom as a whole has a better chance of rejoining the European Union than an independent Scotland does, because I think there's a lot of factors that the SNP are just simply not being honest about that would affect Scotland's chances of joining the European Union. Interestingly enough, um, Alex Salmon's Alba party uh, announced that they do not think an independent Scotland should rejoin the EU because of the asks that mm-hmm. they would have to do to get there. Um, for instance, like taking the euro as a mm-hmm. currency. Um, but first of all, you'd have to set up your own independent currency, mm-hmm. and it'd have to run in a... In a, in a, in a Uh, in a decent manner because they don't want to get people in that are going to do what happened with Greece, you know, where they have to bail them out. They want strong (laughs) countries that can come into the European Union with, you know, strong, uh, with a strong currency. Mm -hmm. But then ultimately they would want you to take the euro as part of rejoining. Um, And I think secondly as well, you know, they keep on dismissing the fact that Spain is going to have a major problem with an independent Scotland rejoining the European Mm -hmm. Union. And I can tell you right now from colleagues that I work with in Spain they do not want an independent Scotland in the European Union because they know what that would mean for Spain and especially the autonomous region of Catalan. And... Mm. Um, And I think there's also, you know, there's other parts of the European Union that would be very scared about that. You know, you look at Belgium, um, there's some concerns about the Flemish, you know, uh, community there as Mm. well. So um, I think they need to be a bit more honest about that roadmap. And they also need to be honest about the number of years it would take. Mm. So not only do you have to decouple yourself from the United Kingdom, which if Brexit has shown us anything, it's not an easy process. And we've got many hundreds of years more (laughs) tied together as a member of the United Kingdom than, you know, uh, Forty odd years of membership of the European Union. Um, so, I, I, you know, but in terms of how it's affected Scotland's economy, like I, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and lie that Brexit's not had a had a bad effect. Obviously, you know, our fishermen have been massively impacted. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of our farmers have been massively impacted as a result of coming out of the common agricultural policy. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately, a lot of businesses mm-hmm. will will suffer. The, the whiskey industry um, took a little bit of an impact as well. Um, but also it took a bit of an impact because of tariffs that were put on from America for a period of time when that madman was in the office. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, it's it's not been easy and it would not have been what I'd chosen to do, but I think, obviously, I have to respect that that's, that's mm-hmm. the decision that we've come to. I'm um, also, look, I, I, I come from... Uh, I had a conversation with um, Gavin Esler. Uh, if you know Gavin Esler, mm-hmm. who used to present BBC Night the other night, and he's wrote a book and um, called uh, rather you know sort of uh, phrased in a manner that's obviously eye-catching how britain ends and the rise of four nations um but in that book he talks about uh, federalism um and the other thing that we need to consider as a part of brexit and something i'm very passionate about just because of my background so my family my great grandfather's originally from northern ireland and mm. um, so we, we have st- sort of strong ties to northern ireland is how brexit's massively impacted northern ireland um and there's also people in glasgow that come from uh, Irish community backgrounds, I have serious concerns about what's happening in the Irish Sea and how that might affect Northern Ireland. And also people who come from the Republic of Ireland who live in Glasgow that are very, very concerned about what this means for their um for their status as a as a resident. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot of issues that we need to overcome, but uh, I think it's still got a number of years before we get back to any stability.
0: I'd just like to turn back to the manifesto for a moment because Uh, In the manifesto, there is a commitment to reopening railway lines, moving away from um, fossil fuels used on the networks, coal, for example, uh, to help with um, trains going up and down the lines. Um, In terms of reopening railway lines, Mm -hmm. what impact do you think that that would have in terms of the economy and how much do you think it would uh, cost in terms of Reopening railway lines, as opposed to uh, opening and uh, constructing new railway lines.
1: Yeah, look, I think um, th- there is there is obviously an opportunity to do a major upgrade of Scotland's ne- um, railway network, but I think we also need to look at what the the economic impact would be of not getting more people onto public transport. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, you know, I talked at the start about the levels of pollution that are in places like Glasgow, um, and obviously we have we're massively impacted by the fact that people who travel into Glasgow predominantly sit on what's called the Kingston Bridge, uh, which is obviously majorly backlogged all the time, uh, which leads to pollution problems in the city centre. Um, and in fact, you know, we're trying to encourage more people to get on public transport. The problem with public transport in Scotland is obviously the um, the, the the network has not been upgraded. Um, the trains are, are specifically very old on a lot of the lines mm-hmm. that come into Glasgow. Um, if you look at you know, I hate to go back to, I'm obviously staying at, standing in Glasgow, but if you look at, for instance, Greenock, where my mom and dad live, the trains that run on the Inverclyde line are, are ancient. You know, they're like old, old models, and they're not very energy efficient. So um, I think there is a really good case to be made there. In terms of how it would actually be funded, um, you know, there, there's, there was a 50 million program um, for public transport that's been delayed until 2025 and we are calling for that to be brought forward Mm. to assist in getting more people onto public transport and upgrading the network. Um, But we've talked about uh, basically getting together um, a a panel to look at sustained long-term investment into the public transport network across the whole of Scotland, so not just the railways but also how we encourage more people onto Buses um, and also onto things like active travel. So, you know, cycling, walking, and how we make, you know, uh, investments into those. Getting things like more cycle lanes in Glasgow will be beneficial for getting people. But we've also talked about this idea of um, changing planning structures so you can get things like 20 minute Mm neighbourhoods. So you can get to the doctors, to your supermarket, to um, local businesses within a 20 minute walk as opposed to having to drive to them. Now, obviously, that's a major ambition for towns and cities. Bit more difficult for rural areas, I appreciate, because there's people, you know, who live on farms that are on hills in the middle of nowhere, and obviously they will have to still be able to get in a car and drive. Um, but I think the we will do it. So we've what we've announced is we'll undertake a major spending review, and then we'll look at the best ways to achieve a significant investment on rail and bus infrastructure. And um, one of the things I wanted to just briefly touch on was that um, when I mentioned about Hope Street in Glasgow, which is the most polluted street in the whole of Scotland. What I find really quite baffling and a bit shocking was the Scottish government uh, made the strategic investment to introduce hydrogen buses in Dundee and Aberdeen. Mm. Um, and that was jointly funded by a, a European programme for hydrogen um, uh, transport. They bought those buses from Wrightbus Bus in Northern Ireland, mm. um, and they have now been instituted in, in, uh, in Aberdeen and Dundee for the life of me, I can't understand why you wouldn't have done that in the most polluted place in Scotland. Um, and I think the fact that we're still talking about it, it might be a few years before we get hydrogen buses into Glasgow city centre. I'm, I'm frankly, I'm just not willing to wait. You know, <laughs> let's get it done now. Let's put the strategic funding needed towards that. Um, one of my People I'm competing against in the seat, Patrick Harvey, doesn't think we should invest in hydrogen technology. He thinks we should just get everybody on bikes. Um, I think I'm a bit more pragmatic in the mm. fact that I don't think you're ever gonna get everybody on bikes away from cars and buses. Mm. Let's try and make them as green as possible. I think there's a really good opportunity to discuss about how we get people out of diesel and petrol cars and into things like electric vehicles, and hydrogen vehicles. Um, and maybe that's a case of looking at, you know, do we want to institute some sort of, Policy in Glasgow City Centre for low emissions vehicles as well. So, you know, I, I think that's the route we need to go down. But that—that's how we would fund this. I think we need to—we need to have a, a panel and a strategic uh, review about how we spend on public transport.
0: Uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast, David. It's been great to have you on, and I have one final question. We've discussed coronavirus a great deal uh, during uh, this podcast, as you mentioned. Uh, we're beginning to uh, ease a little bit in in terms of uh, restrictions, but there are obviously uh, still a a great deal of uh, issues in in terms of people getting about and acting as they would normally. Mm. So what one thing are you most looking forward to being able to do when coronavirus is finally a thing of the past?
1: Do you know, that's a good question, and it's i think so that you know coronavirus has been difficult i mean i've i've worked entirely through this whole pandemic um mostly from home um, typically i would have been so so my my business and my work is based in london so i would have been in london quite a lot and i haven't now been in london for way over a year now um, and i haven't typically i would travel quite a lot of places with my work um before the literally the day that we announced the lockdown i was in belfast um <laughs> visiting a customer and uh, and I had to fly back to the mainland, uh, and, and yeah, I was a bit <laughs> worried about how that was going to how that was going to go down. Um, and I think it's just weird. It's changed my my whole way of working. I mean, I, I've talked in a few hustings about. Um, I've done a lot of traveling to San Francisco because I've done a lot of work in Silicon Valley, um, and I just it's been so long since I've done that. Hmm. But I think um, the the most important thing to me is is seeing. My family, um, I've not been able to see a lot of my family members in a real setting for quite a while. Um, my my grandfather passed away from COVID um, back in February, uh, which was not, you know, not the nicest of things. Mm. Um, and he was in a care home. So I never actually got to see him before he died. Um, and I've not really been able to see my grandmother mm. since that happened up, up beyond attending the funeral um so that's been difficult and i would i would really like to get back to that level of being able to visit my family properly so i think that's the most important thing to me but i think there's also you know i don't want to be one of the people that says like i'm, I'm dying to go to the pub but you know, <laughs> but it would be nice to see my friends and stuff like that and go and have a drink but in the immediate say you know I've, I've got an election to get through <laughs> um and and deal with that so uh yeah yeah just just looking forward to that and how about yourself have you, have you got things you're looking forward to doing uh, well, yes, i would probably
0: uh, seeing family uh, like yourself getting out uh, more. It's, it seems ages since we've been able to <laughs> go anywhere, uh, really. So, yeah, I mean, those would be the the kind of things that would be at uh, the top of my priority list.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think I hope everybody who's listening, uh, you know, has managed to get through this in, in as well a manner as possible. And i hope everybody's keeping mentally as fit as possible because i know these are difficult times um and you know hopefully things like this podcast can help people get through what's been a very difficult year uh, or a year and a half uh, in reality um weirdly enough i was going to say just before we finish up um i with work i was in italy the week before the instituted lockdown for oh, coronavirus right. and um and when I I was I, I don't know God I, I'm I'm so thankful as well because um, I'd went to the AC Milan Inter Milan derby uh, and I was travelling on the subway and I just thought I don't know how I managed to avoid that like I, I, as soon as I got back and I heard how bad it was I thought better go and get tested but you know I, I hadn't had it so it's it's that seems like such a long time ago now. Hmm. Um, And I just really hope a lot of people out there are managing to get through on a daily basis because it's been difficult. It's been a difficult year and a half. Mm -hmm.
0: I uh, agree with you uh, completely, uh, David. If people want to find out more about your campaign, where should they go to find out more about your campaign?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter. So I am at David X McKenzie. Um Mackenzie spelled M-C-K, not M-A-C-K. Um, I've, I've been announced on a lot of things as M-A-C-K. And, uh, I try not to be pernickety about it, but it's <laughs> but that's the way it's spelled. Um, I got asked recently on a, I got interviewed for another podcast. And they said, does the X mean anything? Is it your middle name? And I said, oh, well, no, I said, I, I couldn't take David McKenzie. And I said, when I was a little boy, I really wanted my middle name to be Xander, but that didn't happen. <laughs> so in some ways that's, that fills in for it and then obviously I'm on Facebook you can find me at um, David McKenzie for Glasgow Kelvin um, or I think if you just type in facebook.com slash David Lib Dem, it uh, comes up and yeah, those are the social channels I'm on. I'm not going to be, I'm not going uh, to lie. I'm not a big Instagram person. I've never used it. So I don't have an Instagram because um, somebody asked me that the other day there. Can I find you on Instagram? And <laughs> I said, no, I'm afraid you can't. So um, yeah. And uh, you know, feel free to reach out to me on those platforms and um, be always happy to connect to people who are interested in the world of politics. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Will. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at debatedpodcast. Like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at the debatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.